1: Hello, and welcome back to the Nonprofit Investment Stewards Podcast. I'm Bob DeMeo, as always, joined by co-host Devin Francis. Now, our podcast has a variety of listeners, from nonprofit CFOs and executive directors to board members and many more. Today's episode hits on a topic that is increasingly important to all these stakeholders, including your donors, and that is how can we tell if a nonprofit's initiatives or even its mission are effective? We've got an amazing guest who will help us understand how data and very rigorous evaluation should play a vital role if you're a nonprofit leader. But before that, Devin, always good to be with you. How are things?
2: Fantastic. Thanks, Bob. I'm so excited today to hear from our guest, Annie Duflo, who is the Executive Director at Innovations for Poverty Action. IPA is a Washington-based nonprofit that evaluates programs serving the poor, and Annie is responsible for leading the strategic direction of IPA. She has a broad wealth of experience implementing and managing randomized evaluations and using data to make better decisions. She has a long list of achievements. She holds a master's of public administration and an international development degree from Harvard University. And IPA research covers a lot of ground from agriculture and financial inclusion to education, health, and a lot of other topics. So Annie, we are so eager to glean your insights on this fascinating subject. Welcome to the show. Thank you.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Annie, it's so good to be with you. And before we jump into the importance of using data to improve decisions and such, I'll just share how I became familiar with you. I know it was earlier this year, it was a cold Saturday morning back in January in Chicago. And I'm reading the Wall Street Journal featuring an article about you and IPA. And I have to tell you, I was so impressed with the analytical rigor that's referenced in terms of the work that you're doing and so on. I jumped on your website and learned more, made a tiny donation just because I was so moved by the work that you're doing. And then ultimately, as you know, reached out and we've gotten to know each other other a little bit that way. So before we jump into the things, perhaps you can share a little bit about your background, how you landed at IPA, and really the role the organization plays in fighting poverty.
3: Great, happy to. So I was raised with two values that I think are fundamental to IPA's work. My father is a mathematician and my mother is a pediatrician who also was volunteering for a nonprofit organization that helps children victims of war. And that really instilled in me both a strong belief in science and rigor, but also the the desire to have a social impact. And since college. I have volunteered and then worked for a couple of non-profit organizations, both in France and then in India, where I lived for six years, which is when I really decided to work in international development more specifically. And it's also in India that I was introduced to IPA. At the time, I was leading a research center focused on microfinance, the Center for Microfinance Research. And our model was very similar to that of IPA in that we would partner with researchers, Uh, practitioners, decision-makers to to study microfinance. And that's when I first worked with Dean Carlin, an economist who founded IPA in in 2002. So microcredit at the time was a very popular approach, and I would go to conferences and and hear about how this was a silver bullet to poverty alleviation and, and how other things would follow like women's empowerment or education. At the same time, though, uh, there were local governments and, and local media who were accusing microcredit organizations to push poor people and farmers into over and, and suicide. I, I remember that one of our partner organizations almost had to close their doors because of that. So what do you believe, right? There is always one anecdote or another to to support one story or the other. And that's really where IPA comes in. Our mission is to answer such questions rigorously and to discover what works uh, to reduce poverty. And we do that by partnering with researchers, practitioners, decision makers, very much the same way that the r&d unit of a pharmaceutical company does for medicines right so i give you the example of of microcredit but we work across a ran- range of issues like agriculture you know health education or even conflict
2: it's so interesting Annie. so you and ipa conduct extensive research all with the goal of ultimately fighting poverty. So before we delve into specifics, can you talk broadly about the role that good data and analysis can and should play in the world of nonprofits?
3: Right, so to simplify things, I think that there are three types of questions that organizations need to answer. And this is really about the how, the what, and the what else. So to expand on this, the first question is, how is my program being implemented? Uh, to stick to the microcredit example, am I reaching the people that I'm targeting? Uh, is the cash getting to them on time? Are my loan officers being trained, etc.? The second question is, is this program achieving the intended outcome or impact? Uh, in this case, is it reducing poverty? And the third question is, what else could I do to increase the impact that I'm having on my beneficiaries? And you need different kinds of data to answer these three types of questions. Uh, To answer the first question, which is about implementation quality, you most likely need to collect internal data on on a regular basis. To answer the second question and the third question, the, the impact and the what else questions, it's useful to first explore whether there is existing evidence out there. Is there existing evidence about the impact of similar types of interventions? Is there existing evidence about the best ways to help the beneficiaries that I'm targeting? And if there isn't enough existing evidence out there, then it might make sense to to run a new impact evaluation or to run a study to test something new. And to to run that kind of studies, my recommendation would be to work with an external partner, like a research organization like IPA or other research organization out there.
2: And I imagine that it must be hard for a lot of nonprofits to really take a step back and, and ask those questions and be willing to deal with the answers <laughs> if you know for instance if they if the impact is not you know meeting the goals so from your perspective do you feel that data is underutilized by charitable organizations
3: that's a good question i would rephrase by asking whether they're using the right data in the right amount and whether they do use it and what we often see with the organizations that we have worked with is that Often organizations collect either too much data, which they end up not using, or or they end up collecting too little data, in which case, you know, they they can't answer questions in in the first place. And at at IPA, we have created a unit that provides advisory services to to organizations to help them develop uh, the right fit monitoring and evaluation strategy. And we called it the right fit evidence you need for for that reason because this is really about developing the right fit data strategy that that fits an organization's needs.
1: Annie, in that Wall Street Journal article, you talked about dispelling misperceptions. I think the example was reducing bacteria-related deaths with a pretty simple solve. And you were quoted as saying, sometimes people need a short nudge rather than a long lecture. Expand on what this means and again, how it might relate to using data to advance a mission.
3: I was referring to behavioral approaches to influencing people's behavior and I can start with myself as an example. If I didn't have uh, an automatic transfer from my bank account to my savings account, I certainly wouldn't save as much as I do now. And we all have these things, I'm sure you do as well, that we know we should do and yet we don't do them. Like go to the gym or eat a salad and lecturing me on the value of savings or healthy eating probably won't do the trick, right? And poor people are no different, except that they have a lot more things to think about because a lot of things like automatic transfers are not baked into their day-to-day life. So going back to the savings example that I started with, there has in fact been several studies of the impact of conventional, conventional financial education programs. And the results are pretty consistent as these conventional financial education approaches don't really change knowledge, nor do they change behaviors. And that's a really important finding because every year several millions of dollars are being spent by non-profit organizations as well as governments on such financial education programs. On the other hand, there has been other approaches that that we've tested at IPA that did lead to a change in behavior. Uh, For example, sending people text messages to remind them to save did lead to increases in savings or in the Dominican Republic, we tested an alternative approach to financial education training, which was a rule of terms training. The idea was to give entrepreneurs simple tips, like you know, separate your salary from the rest of your business, as opposed to teaching them underlying you know, accounting principles. And this approach did lead to improvements in business practices. So building on my quote, Nudges often work better than than lectures, but also the design and the content of lectures and trainings really matters. And not not all, but a lot of the interventions that we evaluate at IPA do include such uh, behavioral component across sectors. And to to give you a very uh, relevant example right now, uh, we're working in, in Bangladesh to test different approaches to encourage people to wear masks consistently. So, for example, you know, using trusted leaders to share messages or reminding people on the street to wear their masks. And those have been shown to increase consistent mask wearing threefold. Um, and as we speak, these approaches are, are being adopted by some organizations in India.
1: That's terrific. You're talk, uh, talking about the, uh, pardon me, Devin, talking about the effectiveness and not necessarily sticking with, you know, what has been done for some time, even if it isn't uh, necessarily effective. Really enjoy hearing about that.
2: Yeah. So Annie, uh, IPA has, you, you already alluded to your work in the microfinance and microcredit space And your organization has conducted some fascinating research on microcredit. So can you share what you learn about unintended consequences in this area? And if you have examples of other areas with examples of of unintended consequences.
3: So it's not so much about unintended consequences, but rather about results that not everyone expected, I guess. So remember, I mentioned the two very opposite perspectives on on microcredit, right? Either it's a silver bullet to poverty or it pushes people into suicide. Well, it it turns out that none of these stories was was true. Um, So there has been six rigorous studies of microcredit programs by IPA and, and other researchers and those were all randomized evaluations, uh, which is the main methodology, like you mentioned in your introduction, that IPA uses to evaluate the impact of programs. That's the same method that's being used to assess the effectiveness of medicines. So all of these studies were pretty consistent and showed that the traditional microcredit project did help some businesses, but overall it didn't lead to increased incomes across the board. It's a useful financial tool. It provided people freedom of choice you know, on how to earn and on how to spend their money, which is certainly a great thing. But again, it was not a silver bullet to poverty alleviation. and It didn't lead to you know, other things like women empowerment and things like that. So certainly this is a useful financial tool that private investors and banks should should invest in, but not necessarily where philanthropic dollars should be invested. Now, I started by saying those were not, these results were not expected by, by many. In some sense, maybe it wasn't that surprising, right? It's like my credit card, right? It's very helpful to me. It's a useful tool, but it certainly, you know, it hasn't made me an entrepreneur in a day, right? On the other hand, microcredit wasn't harmful either. It was not, it was not pushing people into suicide or, or over Annie,
1: one area of focus, an important area of focus for IPA is social protection. And the research section of your website poses this question, can extensive support help households work themselves out of extreme poverty? And it touches on points, and I'll do air quotes here, points like asset transfers on everything from goats and chickens to savings and consumption. And love to have you tell us more about your findings and whether training and support can actually help solve poverty.
3: So let's start by reminding ourselves what it means to be an extreme poor. The World Bank definition is that it means living under $1.99 a day, which for you and me requires a stretch of the imagination. Yet it's not just about the, the money, right? Being extreme poor means not having enough savings to weather any sort of shock, like a health shock, which means that you're not able to take any risks, therefore probably not start a business. It often means going through periods of hangers, not being, too, not, not being able to keep a job as a result low self-esteem in other words it's a vicious circle and as a result it's hard to know where to start so at ipa we have evaluated uh, in seven different countries a bundled approach that addresses several of these problems at once and it's called the ultra poor graduation approach it's an approach that was initially designed and, and rolled out by BRAC, the largest nonprofit in bangladesh and the world i think and in fact, they, they designed this approach initially because they realized that their microcredit product was not reaching the poorest of the poor, probably because you know, it was too much of a risk for them to take. So, this ultra poor graduation approach consists in giving people a productive asset, like a cow or a goat or chicken, and together with that, some training on how to use this asset weekly household visits to to provide them support over 18 months. It also involves a consumption stipend to prevent periods of hunger and access to a savings account or a health stipend. And what we find is that this approach led to all sorts of improvements, increased income, increased consumption, increased assets, increased food security, better health, and also uh, more positive outlooks on life. And the, the program also, the, the effects of the program lasted beyond the 18 months that, that the visits lasted. So that, that's an important finding. And even though the program is, is quite expensive, when you compare cost and benefits, it was overall quite a cost-effective program. So we actually calculated returns on investment and, and from that, they range from uh, 133% to 433%, depending on, on the context and the cost. And this approach has now been adopted in more than 20 countries as, as a result. I, I would say it's one of the most effective approaches that that we have evaluated. Not to say that this is a silver bullet, because I don't think there is any silver bullet, but it's certainly uh, something that, that we'd recommend to organizations.
2: We have a lot of investment-minded people, and I, I think their ears probably perked up when they heard a 133 to 433 <laughs> <laughs> return on investment. That's a pretty good track record. <laughs>
1: And it must impress donors, too. It's, it's, it's wonderful.
2: So, Annie, IPA aims to help solve global poverty. And clearly, your use of data to drive decisions and investments is very impressive. I think I can speak for both Bob and myself when I say that the work that you do is uh, just staggering. What advice do you have for other nonprofit stakeholders so in any type of charitable organization about the use of data and making better decisions?
3: My first advice is not to start with the data, is to start by taking a step back and really thinking about your theory of change. So in other words, Why do I think that my approach is having an impact? And how is it having this impact? My second advice is, as a result of this reflection, to ask yourself, what do I need to learn? Going back to the three types of questions I, I mentioned earlier about the how, the what, and the what else, right? Within that, what do I need to learn? And based on that, what kind of data do I need and how can I get this data? Should I get it internally or or externally? And I think this learning agenda phase is often what's what's missing, and that is often what leads to either too much or too little data being, being collected. The third advice is, as you collect data, any kind of data, whether it's internal or external, you should always ask yourself, how will I act on this data and will I act on this data? And if the answer is no, or I don't know, you may want to rethink whether this data is actually needed. So I mentioned that at IPA, we've started this new unit called the Right Fit Evidence Unit that advises organization on, on how to develop their monitoring and evaluation framework. We developed a, a framework, which we call the CART framework. It stands for credible, actionable, responsible, and transportable. There are other frameworks out there, but it's it's a useful one to really guide your decisions in terms of what data to use and collect. And finally, my last advice would be that while understanding and measuring impact of an intervention is important, because that's how we ensure that we spend our resources effectively, that doesn't mean that every organization should try to evaluate their impact all the time. And people are sometimes surprised that I say that because that's kind of the business that we are in. But I think it's, it's really important to first look at whether there is existing evidence out there. And like I said earlier, if there is enough of it, there is no need to measure impact again. In that case, focus on monitoring your intervention to make sure that it's implemented as planned to achieve the desired outcome.
1: Annie, in terms of a charitable organization attempting to amplify their mission and impact, we know that scale matters. What are some of the opportunities and maybe some of the pitfalls when it comes to scaling up initiatives and and what role can data play in that example?
3: So I will start with my own experience. Some years back, I spent time in Ghana and worked with the Ministry of Education there to explore how they could adapt and scale a targeted education uh, approach that was shown to be effective in, in India. And I had, when I lived in India, I had worked with the, the nonprofit organization that developed this approach, uh, Pratham, and I'm have a great admiration for this, for this organization. So I was really excited about exploring, adapting this approach in, in Ghana. And all sorts of questions came up about how this could be adapted in a different context, not just geographical, but also cultural and institutional, because in this case, it had to be done to the government. And there were questions around whether this will work at all in this new context. So indeed, when, when we scale something right, that, that worked initially often that means that the organization or even just the people implementing the program will change, the context will change as well. The resources will change as well because you may have to do it with lower of unit cost. So the original intervention may not, you know, end up having the same impact when scaled because the intervention actually will change one way or the other. So I think that there are three pieces of advice here. The first is to think about scale from the beginning. So even as you develop a program at a large scale, at a small scale, pilot it, think about scale from the beginning, integrate that into the program design. The second piece of advice is, because the program will have to be adapted somewhat to the new scale and context, it's really important to be very clear about the key components that made the program successful in the first place so that they don't get lost in the adaptation. Right? And at the same time, it's, of course, very important to understand the new context and what will be different about it, right? Will the people implementing it be different? Will the cultural response be different, Etc. And finally, it's really important, I think, to have a research agenda and a learning agenda throughout the process. At IPA, we have what we call a pass to scale research agenda where we identify promising interventions that were rigorously evaluated and shown to be effective. And then we work to uh, scale them up you know, together with partners and to, to study their impact as they get scaled.
2: Wow, so we've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything that you haven't said that you would leave behind as an offering to nonprofit leaders, uh, maybe the board or even the investment committee of a a nonprofit organization that might be useful as they attempt to kind of move through the world as good stewards? So I'll get back
3: to uh, some of the things that, that I mentioned earlier that I'd like to leave you with. Something I've observed is that many organizations use the word impact, but don't always necessarily have a great way to understand the impact that that they are having. So I think it's worth taking a step back and thinking about first, what does impact mean for our organization? And how would I go about understanding what impact my organization and my programs are having? Like I said, that doesn't mean one should run an impact evaluation internally, but I think this reflection process is is important. And the other thought that I would leave you with is that the use of data, the use of experimentation and impact evaluations should be geared towards the future, not the past. And what I mean with that is that negative results shouldn't be seen as a performance issue right it shouldn't be seen as a failure it should be seen as learning so organizations shouldn't be afraid of collecting data of measuring impact when relevant they shouldn't be afraid of experimenting and publishing their results and funders shouldn't use you know studies as accountability tools rather they should be learning tools focused on the future
1: that's terrific, Annie. I, the term that came to mind as you were describing that, you called it learning. In my mind, I had discovery and really the same. You, you're just saying, hey, let's, let's learn, let's discover and, and ultimately improve and grow. So that's terrific. So Annie, we always like to learn a little bit more about the person. And so Devin and I would like to ask you, you, you obviously are so committed to your profession and it's, it's demanding and such, but Tell us about one thing you enjoy doing outside of your professional and volunteer activities.
3: Well, I have a two-year-old baby, a toddler, I guess. Mm. <laughs> so that, that keeps me quite occupied and, and very happy. And in my mm. spare time, apart from that, I like to play the piano
2: Excellent. Well, I'm sure you don't have that much spare time, but that's certainly a valuable way (laughs) to spend it. (laughs) I make sure to
3: play it a little bit almost every day. Oh, great. Good for you. Wonderful. More discipline than (laughs) I Practice matters.
2: (laughs) So Annie, it's been so great to have you on the show. We really appreciate you coming on. If listeners want to learn more about Innovations for Poverty Action, where should they go to find out some info?
3: Our website, I guess, is the best place, www.poverty-action.org.
2: Poverty-action.org. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been excellent to, to speak with you. Thank you
3: so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Annie. I echo Devin's thoughts. Our listeners will greatly appreciate this. And, and thanks so much to our listeners. As I digest what Annie has to say about the use of good data I'd almost define IPA as being healthy skeptics. And candidly, that's the role that Devin and myself, and frankly, everyone at Fiducian Advisors attempts to play in helping our clients oversee endowment, foundation, even retirement plan investments for nonprofits. So if you or your board feels there's room for improvement or you're just not sure, you absolutely should reach out to me or Devin via LinkedIn, and you definitely want to check out the many resources at fiducianadvisors.com. So to all you good stewards, thanks for investing time to help your nonprofits prosper. We'll connect with you soon on the next episode.
0: Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Investment Stewards Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified of new episodes and visit fiducianadvisors.com for more information. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of fiducian advisors. Content is made available for informational and educational purposes only and does not represent a specific recommendation. Always seek the advice of qualified professionals familiar with your unique circumstances.